Well, it's that time <clears throat> for us to, excuse me, <clears throat> to take our Bibles and uh, to study together. I'm excited to um, look at Hebrews chapter 12 with you. So if you find your way to Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to be looking at verses 18 to 25. Hebrews 12, 18 to 25. Um, there is a saying that we use when we want to convey our determination and willingness to fight for something or stand for something, no matter what it may cost us. And we usually put it in the form of a question. We ask someone in this position, is this the hill that you want to die on? It usually uh, is in question form because there is a certain cautionary element that usually goes with it. And and it's best expressed, as I say, in a question. The implication is that if you take this hill, well, you'll pay dearly for it. The idiom is obviously derived from a military context where soldiers are prepared to take the position of a hill from an enemy, which is nearly impossible and sure to result in mass casualties. But if a soldier is sure that the hill is worth the cost of taking, then he will to die on a hill, on a figurative hill, means that we might hurt our reputation, cause upset to our family, set us back financially, inflict a great deal of pain and suffering or heartache, maybe alienation and persecution from others, or a loss of our jobs. That's what it means. Current illustration of this is a, the stand, I think, that many in America and around the world are taking against vaccine mandates. I'm using this just as an illustration now, so don't get nervous. Speaking for <clears throat> America, anyway, I can say that most of the time, that this is not much of an issue of whether these people are anti-vaxxers. They're not, most of them. It's more an issue of rights and freedoms that are being infringed upon. Those who stand firm against such mandates are sorely discriminated against in all kinds of ways. They're being fired from their jobs. They are prevented from eating, uh, entering grocery stores and eating at restaurants in some major cities. But freedom, constitutional right, is the hill that they are willing to die on. And for them it is worth it. Now maybe that's your hill too. I don't know, or perhaps you have another one. Or maybe you take stands occasionally. Or maybe you have one that you take a stand on all the time. Where do you take your stands is a good question, I guess. Where do you refuse to compromise? When it comes to the faith, what are your sacred battles and how much are you prepared to spare for them? It seems to me that as I studied our text for this morning, that this is really the question, the question of the writer to his audience. He has, he has been writing to this first century Jewish Christian audience who seem to be ill-prepared and unwilling to take a stand for Christ no matter the cost. And rather, they play it safe by compromising the truth and incorporating Judaism into their faith, if not embracing it altogether once again. Why? Well, maybe it's because it's more familiar to them, something they've grown up with. It certainly keeps peace between 
them and their close-knit family members, keeps their religious leaders off their backs, and allows them to live without any kind of stigma in their little town. There is no question it's safer to do this as well. It keeps them below the radar of the empire. It's just less hassle all around. So they attend the temple, and others get the impression that they're faithful Jews. So what? It's, it's not hurting anyone. And it keeps them from losing their property or being discriminated against. Well, as Christians, we face some of the same issues today for our faith. We risk embarrassment from family and friends, discrimination from work and strangers, persecution in various forms from those in our circle of life, and more and more from our government when they back us into a corner with mandates that are not laws and violate our conscience or even our Christian values. If you are a spirited, obedient-filled Christian, or spirit-filled and obedient Christian, rather, living for Christ, running the race of faith, fighting the good fight of faith, then there's no doubt that you're feeling the pressure all around you. That's what happens when a Christian lives in an anti-Christian, godless environment. We're like oil sitting in water. The separation is obvious. But you can make it less obvious if you want. You can dilute the sacred oil of your faith so that you mix in well with the rest of the watery population. Christians do this when they don't want to work hard or assume their God-given responsibility or, or be good ambassadors for Christ in a world that hates Him. This is where the first century congregation was at. As you know, they were drifting from apostolic truth right back to Judaism or some form of it. And the writer of the Hebrews has spent 12 chapters dismantling their faulty reasoning, showing them that first that Christ is superior to the prophets and then superior to the angels and then to Moses and finally to Aaron. And he does this by comparing all of what the Old Testament, or Old Covenant rather, offered to those who were longing for what is superior, that is the New Covenant. And every so often he takes time essentially to call them to embrace God's full promise of future blessing in Christ and in the New Covenant. We see another moment in this book, right here, the last time, in fact, where the author calls them again to do justice, to look at the new covenant, to embrace the new covenant. And he does it by comparing these two covenants, showing one to be obsolete and the other, the new, to be improved and better. The comparison not only shows them the logic of embracing the new covenant, but it calls them to take a stand once again for all that it represents. Actually, he uses the hill imagery that we mentioned moments ago. Let me, let me show you. We, let's examine it together. Hebrews chapter 12, we'll look just at verses 18 to 21. That's the first half of this very exciting passage. I'll read it for you. The writer says, For you have not come to a mountain that can be that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, into the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them, for they could not bear with the command, if even an animal touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. 
So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am terrified and trembling. That's verses 12 to 18. The writer, you should know, combines two different Old Testament passages to recreate the scene that we just read. It's a very familiar one to his audience. One of those passages is Exodus 19, where Moses actually explains that it was on the third month after the miraculous parting of the sea that Israel wound up at the foot of Mount Sinai. And Moses ascends the mountain to talk to God and receive receive instructions to give to the people for when God cuts a covenant with them and gives them the Ten Commandments. This is how it reads, Exodus 19, verses 16 to 19. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud over the mountain, very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire, and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace. And the entire mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder pretty ominous. You can see where the writer of Hebrews got his material. But what about Moses being terrified? That was the last bit, if you remember. That was verse 18. Well, he borrowed that from Deuteronomy 9. In that context, Moses tells the nation, now ready to occupy the promised land, that they had better obey the Lord, and he reminds them of the time when they didn't when God was ready to wipe them out in his wrath for making a golden calf, but Moses interceded for them. And in verse 19, Moses confesses to them that during that time of intercession, he was afraid of the anger and the rage with which the Lord was angry with them so as to destroy them. Okay, so the writer puts together these two passages to create this context that we have in Hebrews 12, uh, um, 18-21, with the hope of countering the drift that was taking place in the church. What is it about his retelling of these events, though, that was supposed to stop their drifting? That's the question that we need to answer, and we'll answer it this morning. We need to be very careful, though, in how we answer this. we got to answer it correctly because there is a great deal for us to misunderstand about this Old Testament context if we're not careful. You see, Hebrews 12, 18 to 21, gives only a glimpse of a much larger context in Israel's history that proved to be a great and positive event. It was about deliverance, God keeping his promise to the forefathers, God redeeming a people for himself, cutting a covenant with them, and much more was positive. Even the way that God revealed himself to Israel was positive. And Moses makes this point himself when he compares God and his actions to the sorry gods of other nations, which are no gods at all. For example, listen to Deuteronomy 4, verses 34 and 35. Moses speaking, Indeed, ask now about the earlier days that were before your time, since the day that God created mankind on the earth, and inquire from one end of of the heavens to the other. Has anything been done like this great thing? Or has anything been heard like it? 
Has any people heard the voice of God speaking from the midst of the fire as you have heard it and survived? Has a God ventured to go and take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials and signs and wonders, by war, by a mighty hand, by an outstretched arm, and by great terrors, just as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? You were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord, he is God. There is no other besides him. Now, obviously, Moses is referring to the Exodus, but he leads in with a reference to the cutting of the covenant at Sinai episode. Did you catch it? He includes this scene as part of the mix of the glorious and spectacular ways that God has dealt with the nation. Here's another positive thing about this context, the people's response. Moses confirms in Deuteronomy 5 that the, that the response of Israel to this awesome and terrifying display of God's presence on Sinai with peals of thunder and, and the ominous light show was praiseworthy. Verse 24, you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness, and we have heard the voice from the midst of the fire, and we have seen today that God speaks with mankind, yet he lives. Now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. We will die. For who is there of humanity who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived. Go, they say to Moses, go near and listen to everything that the Lord our God says, then speak to us everything that the Lord our God speaks to you, and we will listen and do it. That was their response to this whole terrifying scene of thunder and light and fire and smoke. They asked Moses to intercede for them, because they couldn't bear to hear the terrifying sound of God speaking to them. And God tells Moses that this response was good because it shows a reverential fear for God and a submission to him, which is exactly what God wanted to engender in them. Here's what God says to Moses. Now the Lord heard the sound of your words when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the sound of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Isn't it interesting? So far, the Old Testament commentary on this particular incident of the cutting of the covenant of Sinai shows it to be very positive for Israel. He spoke. They listened. They responded in a godly way. God was pleased. There seems to be nothing bad or undesirable about this context at all. In fact, if we look at this context that the writer refers to in Hebrews 12... There are some great principles for God's people of every era, both Old Covenant members and New Covenant members. What are they? Let me give you some of them. We can be sure of at least four from this text that, that find support from other places in the New Testament. One is the importance of recognizing the majesty of God. God is king. Jesus is king of king and lord of lords. His sovereign majesty is at work in our lives, yet many believers haven't a clue about this. Nor do they often see God as the majestic Lord, and it shows in the way that they live their lives. Fretting over trials 
and sinfully worrying about their lives, their food, their clothes, as Jesus chided them in Matthew 6, when the king is in charge of their lives, they shouldn't be worried. Even their worship practices reveal that they don't see themselves coming into the presence of the king who demands their best, their best of their income, the best of their energies, the best of their praise, the best of their intention, the best of their appearance. God demands our best in every area of our lives is an ironclad biblical principle. And it is keenly understood when we understand that God is king. Biblical work ethic demands that we be sterling employees because we really work for the Lord, the king. And if he wants our best at work, he demands our best in all our responsibilities. I think worship services today, contemporary worship services, really are big betrayers of how people miss this. Wish we could spend time on that one. But here's another important principle. It is fearing God. That's what we get from this text. God wanted to achieve proper fear and reverence in the Israelites that day, and he did. Fearing God is less than terror, but it's more than respect. It's right there in the middle. We might, we might call it reverential fear. Christians regard God, then, practically speaking, more than anyone else because of reverential fear. Isn't this exactly what Jesus demands of his followers? Don't bother following me, he says, if you're not going to put me first in your life. That's a rough paraphrase of Matthew 10. Paul was motivated by reverential fear. He says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. So should we. We should work out our salvation with fear and trembling. A reverential fear has been lost in modern worship services and in the lives of many Christians. They seem to regard that what the world thinks of them is more important than what God thinks of them. And many want to recreate a secular atmosphere in church in order to attract the world and keep it in. And as a result, it is at the expense of recognizing the majesty of the king. Another principle from this passage surely is that God dictates the right way to approach him. You cannot approach God just any old way, in any way that you desire. God dictates the way anyone will approach him. This has always been true of every, of every era in human history. God demands the blood of a perfect substitute from anyone who would approach him to commune with him. The psalmist calls for clean hands and a pure heart, which is an unhypocritical worship. Jesus commands confession of us in his model prayer. He himself proclaimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Here's one last principle. Honoring God's word as absolute, or honoring God's absolute word. The Israelites trembled at the sound of God's word, and though we don't hear the sound of God speaking today, we have his clear and unadulterated thoughts in print forever. How, I wonder, does that make you feel? How does that make you feel, knowing that God wrote a book for you? Does that instill humility in you, that the Almighty would care enough to send you his thoughts in print? 
How do you use with eagerness and care the Bible? To many, the Bible is nothing more than an ornament that sits on a shelf in the living room when it really should be what they feed on daily. Do you approach the word with a greater eagerness than you, than you would a much-needed vacation? with greater respect and reverence than you would a visit from a famous dignitary that you admire, with a greater anticipation of securing a correct meaning of the text than you would securing milk and bread before a nor'easter, with greater enjoyment and delight than you would a love letter. Do you make it a point to obey God's word, to remember his commands and principles? Jesus said, the words I have spoken to you, they are full of the spirit and life. Maybe you never thought of these verses in Hebrews 12 as really being so positive for the nation of Israel or that it had such great and rich principles for the church today. Maybe you can understand my caution then in making sure that we don't misunderstand the writer's point. We have to be very careful not to run down or criticize the Old Testament or the Old Covenant way. God gave both and with it Old Testament prophets and Moses and Aaron and the sacrificial system. These were good. These were all good. The writer of the Hebrews never denies that. He would heartily agree. It is what God called for at the time. But that was then and this is now. And now God instituted something better. The old covenant gave way to the new covenant, the better way. The Old Covenant was meant for saved individuals, specifically for their sanctification. It was the spiritual maintenance of their salvation. And there were many things that they had to do in order to maintain that clear conscience before God so that he would dwell in their midst. Constant practice of rituals and ceremonies and cleanings, washings, confessions, sacrifice, various kinds of fellowship and reparation offerings and tithings. Jesus came and fulfilled the law and instituted the new covenant on his blood. He took care of these ceremonial aspects of the law. But until then, they had to be done. Not just to commune with God. There were also symbols, types of the work that Messiah himself would fulfill. The Old Testament believers knew this and they were reminded every time they engaged in all of these things of the glorious time when Messiah would come and fulfill it all for them. And of course, most of all, Messiah would save his people. The Old Covenant was not designed to save anyone, but the New Covenant is. So let me cut to the chase and tell you, and we've argued this before earlier in the book of Hebrews, that when it comes to comparing the Old Covenant with the New Covenant, it is not an issue of bad versus good, but an issue of good versus better. What they had was good. What we have is superior. Now that we've settled that, let's examine what the writer wants his audience to know about this moment on the Mount Sinai that symbolizes the essence of a now obsolete covenant. First thing I think, and these aren't in any specific order, I think it offered... It offers mere earthly symbols at best that pointed to something better. The Old Covenant 
offered merely earthly symbols at best that pointed to something better. Sinai represented God's covenant that was restricted merely to symbols and spiritual realities, symbols of, rather, spiritual realities of the new covenant. The very mountain itself was no more than an earthly, tangible representation of the heavenly city of the living God. It was a copy, remember? A copy. And it was subject to pass away. Not only that, but worship was restricted to a locale, in this case, to a mountain, even after it was further, further localized to a tent of meeting and eventually to a temple, which, by the way, was on a temple mount. This thinking comes out clearly in the discussion that Jesus had, you remember, with the Samaritan woman. She understood about holy places and high places where, where only designated places where God would meet with his people. In John chapter 4, Jesus was very clear that this would soon no longer be the case. And you should know Mount Sinai itself was meant to point to a better way yet to come for God and his people to commune with each other. So I think that is one thing that the writer points out to his audience, who so love and want to embrace the old covenant again. They're embracing mere symbols at best that point to something better. Number two It is a temporary but necessary separation from God that we see here. A temporary but necessary separation from God. That is what the Old Covenant offered. A separation that existed and had to be maintained between God and his people in the Old Covenant. Had to. They had to keep this in mind when they communed with him or risk being executed. How would you like to worship that way? One misstep and you're a stain on the sand. This is obvious first by the boundaries that Moses set for the people all around the mountain. He puts police tape all around the mountain. They warned the people not to pass onto the mountain on pain of death, including even their animals. Nothing unconsecrated must touch God's holy mountain, for God is holy. The people would be signaled by a long ram's horn when they were to assemble at the foot of the mountain. The idea of separation also comes out in God's command to the people to be consecrated for this event. Think about this now. That was an involved process that interrupted the normal activities of life. You wanted to go worship God or you wanted to go to to Mount Sinai to be involved in the cutting of the covenant. According to Exodus 19, you had to wash your garments and have no sexual relations for three days before this meeting with God. If God would dwell in the midst of his people, they had to to carry out many rules, many regulations, part of what we, again, are calling the ceremonial law, in order for situations to be right for God to commune with them. So the people had to endure inconvenient rituals to ensure that they would not profane their meeting with God. And even then, their meeting was at a distance. Very impersonal, relatively speaking, of course. There's also the need for a mediator who was only human and pointed to Messiah. Yep, need for a mediator who was only human and he pointed to Messiah. God appointed Moses to be his mediator between him and his people. And eventually, the high priest would occupy that role, 
Only God's designated mediator could come on the mountain. And according to the text, Moses eventually wound up being God's mouthpiece to the people because they were terrified at the sound of God's words. It was later that Moses also interceded for them when they committed idolatry. We already mentioned that. That's what left Moses terrified. The human mediator of the, new, of the Old Covenant points to Messiah, the better mediator of a better covenant. And beloved, they knew this. They knew this. It was something they looked forward to. Now keep in mind, and this bears repeating, God cut it, this covenant, with saved people. So this covenant was, as I say, designed not to save anyone, but to establish a way of life for God's people that would be conducive for God to dwell in their midst. It highlighted God's perfect law, God's holiness and unapproachable light. It taught the way of life, that way of life had to be until Messiah came, a life that left the champions of this covenant life longing for Messiah. Managing their sanctification under the Old Covenant was laborious, tedious, but absolutely necessary if they would commune with God and live. But now to the other side of the comparison and the brighter and better way. I save this to the end. So does the writer. I want to preface our examination of verses 19 to 25 by saying that while it is true that the better has replaced the good, listen very carefully, it would be quite bad and actually sinful for any new covenant member who enjoys the better to ever go back to the good. It would be bad and sinful. That's what was happening with this congregation. The writer now shows, com compared to the good, the better mountain, the hill that they should die on. Listen to verses 22 to 24. <clears throat> but you, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriad of angels in joyful assembly and the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better of the blood of Abel. How encouraging. You can tell by putting them both side by side that there's a huge difference. First thing we notice right away in this contrast between these two mountains is really between the recipients of the covenants. Being a different mountain means that they are at different stages in God's economy. The passage begins, but you. It's so easy to gloss over this kind of contrast, but it's one of the stronger ways in Greek to show a contrast. They came to Mount Sinai to all it represents, but you have come to Mount Zion and all it represents. A much better place, a much better system, a much better covenant, and the most ideal stage in God's economy. The writer means to say the new covenant, new covenant members are much different than old covenant we move then from the recipients to the locale, the mountain. 
The writer refers, refers to our hill by three different designations. He calls it Mount Zion. He calls it the city of the living God. He calls it heavenly Jerusalem. He means God's heaven, that is glory itself. There is ample evidence from every part of the Old Testament that Jerusalem and Mount Zion are often viewed as the same place. And the grammatical construction of Hebrews 12.21 equates them both with the heavenly city itself. So we're talking about heaven. We're talking about nothing on earth. We're talking about heaven. This is the same city that Abraham looked forward to. The city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. And it, the writer says, in his closing remarks of chapter 13, is a lasting city. He says, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. That's the lasting city. This is a city that Paul says in Philippians 3.20, we hold our citizenship and from which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is also the same city that John saw in Revelation, describing it as the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And in verse 3, John talks about the closeness that we enjoy with God there, the closeness and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. So we see that we are, in a very, uh, we're, we are very much a part of the heavenly city now. Do you know that? That's really where you belong. You're part of the heavenly city, even now. Moment of conversion, that happens. We hold citizenship there. We have a great inheritance saved there. Jesus will come for us from there. We will spend eternity there. Our communion with God takes place both in our hearts and there. And it is far better communion than what the old covenant could offer because it's greatly enhanced and ensured through the supernatural working of both the Holy Spirit and Christ at the Father's right hand. And it is there that we speak to God face-to-face, -face, as it were, through Christ. How personal is this? There's no separation. None whatsoever at Mount Zion. We can talk to our Heavenly Father anytime, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, completely unaided by any human mediator or sacrifice or offering or washing. What's more, we see as we read on on that, in this intensely personal, accessible place, as John describes it in Revelation, there will be no more death, no mourning, no crying, no pain, for the old order of things has passed away. At Sinai, everyone was actually quite aware of his and her sin, the chance of facing God's fierce wrath, of being executed because of any misstep. But that's all gone now. Jesus bore those missteps and those sins on himself so that we have no fear of judgment. Perfect love casts out all fear. There is only rejoicing in our city, beloved. Only rejoicing that is enhanced by the myriad of angels in joyful assembly. I love this 
this expression, John gives us a fuller description of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. This is in Revelation chapter 5. Listen to verses 11 to 12. I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. God's holiness at Sinai, that demanded the tiresome and burdensome rituals of purifications on the pain of death. But it only inspires joy, worship in the holy city. We join the angelic throng and we worship God. They from there, from that place, and we from here in this place. And someday we will be next to them. And not just them, but all those who are enrolled in heaven. Israel was the first congregation to go by the designation of church and firstborn. God called them that in Exodus. By that designation, along with church, however, God would recognize the new covenant members. It was transferred to us and to the new covenant. Paul tells us in Romans eight seventeen that if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, who himself is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And Jesus tells us that the reason we should rejoice is because then our names are enrolled in heaven, written, Revelation 21, 7, in the Lamb's Book of Life. All of us who make up the church of the firstborn will worship communally. And in a sense, we do that now. We do that now with the invisible church that is there in heaven in the same way we do with the angels now. Notice notice the intensely personal communion also that we share with God himself who is there. He's called the judge of all. Individual personal, personal communion with the judge of all was rather a foreign idea among the Israelites. They would never think of having that kind of communion. No, there was separation. Had to be. God was holy. But when Jesus was crucified and, the, and rent the veil in two, this intensely personal communion with God was now available for everyone who trusts in the work of Christ. At Sinai, you could die if you crossed over the border into the mount, onto the mountain, but all who come to Zion live. The great thing about God being the judge of all is that he will vindicate us, his people, and recompense the wicked. Again, John says, Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. Moving on, this place of ours, this holy city, Mount Zion, this holy mount that we are now part of, that our prayers ascend to when we talk to God, where God, God's will is done first. This is the place where we will be made perfect upon arrival. The writer talks about the spirits of the righteous 
made perfect there. These are the spirits of all believers who are in heaven right now and who are awaiting the resurrection of their new bodies. They have been perfected since they have been exalted to heaven or with Christ. Our relationship with Mount Zion, God's holy city, is both now and not yet. We strive now to be perfect because we are perfect positionally. And when we do come into God's city, in person, we will be made perfect as well. Of course, Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, also resides there. He is the only mediator between God and man. He's our mediator. And he is the one who mediates the new covenant, which he established by the shedding of his blood. And that brings us to the last element in this line, or this lineup, I should say, the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What does the writer mean by this last element? Well, he doesn't talk about the blood of animals, interestingly enough, which we know only pointed to the blood of the lamb anyway. Rather, he talks about the blood of Abel. And I think, I think Philip, Philip Edgecombe Hughes puts his finger on it when he explains that both Abel and Christ shed their blood. Both men shed their blood as a result of violent behavior. Abel was murdered by his brother, spilled his blood, and his spilled blood gave testimony to this. But the, that violent act is offset and even somewhat insignificant compared to the terrible violence that Jesus endured. He spilled his blood willingly and received the judgment of God upon himself for our sakes out of sheer love for us, whom he is not ashamed to call us brothers. So as Hughes explains, Abel's blood cries out for justice and retribution, which God meets by placing a curse on Cain. But Jesus' blood, since it is the blood of a better covenant, cries out to us who are like Cain and just as guilty of something better that is more gracious, gracious than the vengeance demanded by Abel's murder. I quote Hughes, it speaks eternal redemption to us instead of condemnation. The final putting away of our sins, the purging of evil conscience, the perfecting and sanctification of all to whom it is applied. It speaks of acceptance instead of rejection, of blessing instead of cursing. For it is uniquely the blood which cleanses us from all sin. Abel's blood cried out for judgment. But Christ's blood cries out for mercy and pardon, end quote. Great words. Very encouraging. After considering both covenants figuratively as mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, and all that each represents, it makes no sense whatsoever that those who live on Mount Zion would ever want to visit let alone live at the foot of Mount Sinai. Then again, logical sense is never part of the decision when we are ruled by the fear of man, driven by our own lusts of the flesh, governed by ungodly passions and impulses. 
rather than the absolute word of God. Like the first century Jewish Christians of this congregation, we can allow difficulties and persecutions and trials in our lives that are directly tied to our Christianity get to us. We can allow it to get to us to the point where we look not to Christ but to other things and veer off the narrow way in hopes of making our lives easier, reducing the pressure that comes against our faith, avoiding persecution for standing for the truth. But we need to remember our humble beginnings of conversion and our zeal for Christ when we first believed. Beloved, do we not sing, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the first, the hour I first believed." We read from Luke 14, 28 to 34 in our scripture reading this morning, a passage that captures for us what it really means to follow Christ. I would say what it really means to live in Mount Zion. Jesus put it rather succinctly, you either follow me exclusively or not at all. Follow Christ, following him, counting the cost of following him and accepting the consequences is what it means to be a member of the new covenant of belonging to Mount Zion. And it may not be Judaism that you're that you look to in order to alleviate those terrible things that slam against our faith. Those things by the way that you signed up for at the beginning of your conversion. It may be that Retreat to obscurity and never evangelizing or compromising your stance and becoming ecumenical or adopting the, the, late, the latest ideologies from public conscience and never standing for the truth. Or maybe, or maybe hold, to the, hold others and the opinions of others in, in much higher regard than you do God's opinion of you. Whatever it is that you cling to other than Mount Zion to give you relief. You need to know it's temporary. It won't last. And however good you might find it to be, it is woefully lacking and it is sinful to throw overboard that which God gives to be superior to anything we know that carries us in our sanctification and embrace anything, especially anything that is worldly and earthly, can certainly not give you hope of eternal life. And what you cling to so tightly to ensure yourself of the pleasantries of life will become your God. It will become your idol, and you will be enslaved to it. And we might ask Paul's question that he raises to the Galatians, but now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles to which you want to be enslaved all over again? If you're not a member of the New Covenant, the Bible's message is, turn to Christ, trust his work alone, for God accepts those who come to him and 
trusting in the work of Christ. Leave your Sinai behind and enter the city of God. Ascend God's holy hill with clean hands and a pure heart that Christ gives you. If you have done that already, then don't look back. Press on, onward and upward, with outstretched hands toward your home, toward your hope, your life, your inheritance, to that holy hill, and pay no mind to how difficult it may be, because it is for sure a hill worth dying for.